My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Thanks, guys. Okay. We're going to take a quick moment now and feel free to uh, walk your kids back to a uh, child care area, which is right back into the foyer. And uh, first door to the left, you'll see a nice orange sign on there. Nobody. Okay. Usually I have to prepare for a little buffer time as people are migrating there, but there is no movement in. Oh, Zach's up. Zach's up. Uh, all right. See, see you in child care, Zach. All right. Okay. Well, uh, well let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, you are uh, the center of why we're here, Father. There's no uh, sense of, like, purpose behind coming together on your day, in your house, united as your people, aside from to celebrate and to make much of you. And so I pray that that would be the accomplishment of this. I know that uh, not just for me, but for a handful of people kind of just setting up everything today, just, you know, a lot of things weren't exactly working perfectly. There were a couple of, uh, a couple of little, little mishaps here and there. And so, God, I just pray that you would give all of us confidence moving forward that we would just be able to make much of you because that's the goal. That's all that we have aspired to do. So please uh, take control of everything. Speak through me. Use me like just a, a tiny little instrument just to make noise that you want to be heard. And uh, we thank you for Christmas and for Israel and for hope. And uh, help us to explore that together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, team, we've come to the close of our Advent series, which means that we've come to the close of this passage from Mary. And this is Mary's song of celebration, song of worship, song of excitement that came as a result of the angel visiting her and telling her that she was going to give birth to Jesus, who was the long prophesied, long anticipated and expected savior of, uh, of the world. And as she's closing out her sermon, she makes a point to mention Israel. She says specifically in the passage that we're, ta we're tackling today, he has helped Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Sometimes I try to imagine what it looks like to see the Bible 
um, completely from the outside, to look, at, to look at the faith as an outsider, not as someone who's been to church, not as someone who has religious family, but someone who looks at the faith completely in a vacuum, independently. Even to read the Bible for the first time, having no awareness of what the Bible looked like before that. And I think of how confusing it could kind of come across to think like, okay, this Bible is the representative of the Christian faith, and it is this uh, story of a great God's uh, redemption for a broken and, and, and messed up world. But then it dives into this people called Israel, and it's kind of odd. It's like before we get to the hero of the story, before we get to a lot of the big plot points and twists and whatnot, it just spends this time in Israel. And it's not even like a brief snippet of the story. It's not like everything is general towards humanity and then Israel is kind of like this little feature. Like there's a massive amount of Bible that is dedicated explicitly to Israel, We get the prophets of Israel. We get the history of Israel. We get the songs they used to sing. We get the proverbs and the the little snippets of wisdom that they would give to their kids. Like we just get all of this Israelite culture just dropped on us in this book that's supposed to be the story of God saving humanity. And I can imagine that for some, it looks a little out of place, I think it gets even more complicated to think about the fact that over the 2,000 years that the church has existed, we've had a very awkward, for lack of a better word, relationship with uh, not just this concept of Israel, but the actual people of Israel, uh, Jewish people, you might call them. Like, a lot of times when Christians uh, acquired some form of political power, whether it was Roman Empire or whether it was medieval Europe, Jews were persecuted really, really heavily. They were treated terribly by Christian majority groups. A big part of it was because we just thought that, well, they must, be, they must have a few screws loose up here because Jesus came and went and they still think they're looking for their Messiah, so they're obviously a little crazy, and then, you know, just the, the mistreatments and oppression and marginalization of Jews just existed for the span of centuries in a lot of Christian circles. Very, very, very unfortunate blemish on the history of our church. In modern times, um, a lot of Christians have applied this like cloak of mysticism to Israel. Like Israel is almost like this supernatural people group that was loved by God, not because God just chose them randomly, but because they kind of had the secret sauce. They kind of just had that special thing that made them valuable. And we kind of think like, oh, well, if I'm really going to honor Israel, I need to protect Israel. And you get very, very defensive about it. And, you know, I, I, I'm trying not to come across as uninformed here. I, I lived in Israel for about six months. So I, I know I got to see a good amount of this 
idea that like Israel has like so much that needs to be protected and that it's our responsibility, whether you're from America or Honduras or Finland to stand and protect Israel. And so we think that the expression of how we care for this group is to uh, plan very expensive trips to the Holy Land um, and oftentimes take selfies in front of uh, monuments in the Bible. I still think of a time when I just saw people taking pictures of themselves in the tomb that Jesus was buried in. And I'm just like, man, this feels weird. But that's not this sermon. That's another sermon. Uh, and so we, we support Israel politically, and we support Israel in name, and even in some Christian circles that go as far as to celebrate Jewish holidays. And then I think that even on top of that, there's another group of Christians that looks at the other group of Christians and says, like, we've put so much defense and so much untouchableness around the idea of Israel that we may have actually perpetuated some of the conflicts that exist within Israel's borders, specifically their, their headbutting with the Palestinians. And so maybe our mindset that Israel can't be challenged has actually led to a lot of suffering that didn't need to happen because we didn't apply a good lens of criticism. And so even today, when you mention Israel during a sermon, it provokes a lot. It's a complicated thing to talk about because Israel in ancient times and even in modern times is very controversial. You could go to a church probably here in town that would talk about how valuable the Old Testament is because we have such a responsibility to emulate and to mirror the ways of Israel that we need to keep the Old Testament intact and you could probably find another sermon in town or another church in town that would preach a sermon that says, we, you don't actually really need the Old Testament. Jesus came in the New Testament. You know, you can read through a whole bunch of pages in Jeremiah and never hear about Jesus. You might as well throw the Old Testament in the trash. They would never say that, but they wouldn't not say that. And so all of this is begging this question which is what are we supposed to do with Israel? And remembering yesterday, what does it have to do with Christmas? So I want us to land on two points, and here's the first. The story of Israel is built on God's promises. The story of Israel is built on God's promises promises. You know, I told myself I was going to preach in a jacket today, and it's just not going to happen. It's toasty up here. All right. Oh, yeah. Now, now I'm ready. Okay. Um, the story of Israel is built on God's promises. We see this from the very beginning. When we see the very beginning of, of Israel, you know, can somebody just shout out real quick for me who the, who the main, who the father of Israel was? Abraham. Abraham. Great, great, great. 
So we see it from the very beginning. If you read through the first 12 chapters of Genesis, it's kind of abrupt the way it stops right at Abram, right at the story of Israel. It goes, uh, creation, and everything is awesome. Everything is wonderful. Nothing is bad. And then the fall, and then everything starts to steadily unravel into not a good thing. And then uh, God talks to Noah and saves him and his family and then destroys a lot of people with the flood. And then there's the Tower of Babel where a bunch of people get together to kind of do their own thing away from God and God makes people start speaking Swahili. And, you know, everything is happening on this very big scale. And then all of a sudden, God just talks to this one dude whose name is Abram. And what's, what was interesting to me about this is that the origin of God's relationship with Abram wasn't Abram was a really cool guy and... It wasn't like that. In fact, the introduction to their relationship was God showed up to him and said, I need you to move. Like, I need you to leave your family, but it's okay. I'm going to give you your own place, and all of your children are going to form this incredible nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless you, but also through this nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. And Abram's like, okay. And so that's kind of how the story of Israel starts. It starts on promise. And Abram was not a perfect dude. The more you see of his story, the more you see of his character, he pushes against God a lot. He does things he's not supposed to do a lot. But he does show this sense of faith in God that even today as Christians we're told to reflect But most importantly, even as Abraham, or yeah, he became Abraham later, even as Abraham kind of lost his his juju, God was the one that kept his promise. And then zoom forward a little bit, you know, skip a little bit ahead in your Bible. We look at the Exodus story. Who was the key figure of the Exodus story? Moses. Yes, great. Thank you. When God first appeared to Moses, Moses was not, Moses was a really good guy and Moses was a righteous man and the story of Moses started, he had already killed a guy. He had killed a guy in Egypt. He had fled away into the wilderness and that's when God starts talking to him during, to the, through the burning bush. The relationship started on promise, not on the goodness of Moses. And God promises, hey, I have heard the cries and the misery of my people, the children of Abraham who were in slavery, and I am promising that through you, Moses, I'm going to deliver them and I'm going to rescue them from slavery. And that came to pass. Moses, who pushed back, who argued, who did lots of, lots of good things as a leader, but certainly lots of bad In the midst of all of that, God still kept his promise. Let's skip forward a little bit more. We see, uh, well, let's keep this trivia thing going. Who's who's Israel's favorite king? Don't say Jesus. Uh, Israel's favorite king. Who we got? David. See, you guys are three for three out here. Um, The best king that Israel ever had, King David, King David was a beloved man. He was loved and respected by his people. He was constantly called a man after God's own heart. He wrote a bunch of Psalms. Pretty cool dude. 
But, is, but David was not a perfect guy. Again, by the time that God spoke and made this grand promise to him, David had already not just uh, made a number of mistakes as a king, but the big climax of his sin was that he committed adultery, he killed Uriah, and this doesn't get talked about enough, but the absolute abuse of power that David uh, executed in like demanding that Bathsheba come to him so they could sleep together, like I think Bathsheba was sinned against quite a bit in that story, which I don't want to completely gloss over. But... David is told, even in his state of imperfection, God says, one of your sons, way down the line, is going to carry this kingdom that you started, David, and he's going to reign perfectly, and I'm going to establish his kingdom forever and ever. Of course, he was talking about Jesus. David had already proved that despite the best of his efforts, he was still not a perfect guy, but God's promise is what stood firmly. And then we can pick little spots just kind of scattered throughout the prophets and throughout the books of the Bible that we see where God is making even bigger, even grander promises to his people. It's interesting how in the beginning he's saying things like, yeah, I'm going to give you a plot of land to live. Yeah, I'm going to free you from slavery. Yeah, you're going to have a son one day. And later on, he's saying things like, I'm going to send you a redeemer who's going to lead you perfectly forever. And I'm going to recreate all of the world. And I'm going to make it really, really pure and good for you. And he says things like, I'm going to bring all these people who aren't uh, from the bloodline of Abraham and they're going to celebrate and they're going to experience the beautiful presence and gifts of the Spirit right alongside of you. Behold, I am making all things new. All of these promises God continues to make. And it's not because the story of Israel is this story of perfect good people just batting a thousand It's because God was faithful, and this was what he chose to show his people. And so one thing I want to point out about the story of Israel was that the story of Israel was never, ever about God giving good things to all the people who deserved it. God didn't pick Israel because they had some special sauce that made them favorable while the rest of the world was just too gross and sticky to touch. For better or worse, Israel was a snapshot of the rest of humanity, which is that all of humanity has been touched by this special spark of grace, and yet we don't know what to do with it. And we are so easily led, not by God, but by the sin in our hearts that motivates and drives us forward instead. The story of Israel is not the story of a bunch of good people that God just liked because they were good people. The story of Israel is the story of God and his promises. And it's the story of God keeping his promises. That's my first point. Here's my second point. The story of God is built on waiting, a.k.a. our story is built on waiting. 
See, we, we don't have to keep this line between us and Israel when we talk. I don't actually think, even in theological terms, that there is much of a line between Israel and the church because Israel was always the embodiment of his people who he chose, who put faith in him to follow him. And how else do we define the church but those who put faith in him and follow him? So when we look at Israel, I mean, it could make a lot of sense. Why do we celebrate Israel uh, getting freed from slavery? I wasn't freed from slavery. Why do we celebrate Israel at the Passover? God didn't pass over on me. No, he did. Like God is celebrating and protecting and guarding his people, and we are accepted into that as part of the new covenant. So I definitely want to make that point. But again, the story of Israel is built on waiting. The reason that Mary is singing in this passage is because she had been primed with this anticipation to wait on the one that the Lord would send. Now, Andy mentioned this a handful of times. Mary's not like 35, like not, not, like she, she hasn't had a great deal of time to sit and soak in the promises of God. She's probably like 14 or 15. And so the hope that she's carrying with her is a hope that her parents probably taught her and that their parents probably taught them. And it was a hope that they surrounded themselves with, for, with, with Israelites, with their own people, to remember day in and day out. This was a hope that was not just touched on Mary's heart. It was a hope within all of Israel that God would send the man who he's promised to send us, send us our great deliverer. And so Israel for many years, waited. And we know this. There was a gap. It's called the intertestamental period. But there was a gap for hundreds of years between the last prophet speaking in the Old Testament and Jesus' arrival in the New. Things were not hopeful. Things were likely bleak and disappointing. But Israel had learned to hope and to wait on God. I can already touch on that. Sorry. And so I, I, I want to be really careful when I say that. I don't want it to come across like the primary responsibility that we carry as Christians is just to sit around and twiddle our thumbs. I definitely don't think that we're any form of divinely inspired, you know, uh, uh, thumb twiddlers or like we're just, count, we're, just, we're just counting down the clock on the fourth quarter. I don't think that's the case. Honestly, I, I, I see that God is giving us glimpses in so many ways of what's to come. And it's the reason we can enjoy life right now. The ways that we enjoy life, everything we enjoy is a good and perfect gift from the God who gives all good and perfect gifts. And so the things that we enjoy today are glimpses of what we may have in, in greater fullness in the future. And so I don't want to say just sit around and just count out the clock and just wait for Jesus to come back surfing on a, on a storm cloud. I don't want to say that. 
I want to say that the glimpses of Christ that we see in our lives that give us strength, they come when we actively believe, when we actively pursue God, when we actively repent of our sins and walk in obedience. It it comes when we love the people around us. It comes when we forgive the people that sin against us and also confess the sins that we commit. It comes when we work to bring beauty to the world. It comes when we depend on God. It comes when we stand up for those who are oppressed and who are hurting. It doesn't have to be some big, like, you know, charitable group. You don't have to join the Peace Corps to stand up for the oppressed. You can stand up for the oppressed guy at your workplace who gets talked to badly. But there are things we can do to make this hope grow. And I certainly don't want it to become passive. Because God is not calling us to be passive. But we're still waiting. And what is it we're waiting for? We're waiting for heaven. We're waiting for streets of gold and big mansions and maybe a buffet line of pizza stretches from here to Phoenix. Probably be the best use of the 10 these days, but who knows? I would say that we're waiting for all things to be made new. We're waiting for the last of our wounds to be healed. We're waiting on the beautiful mysteries of God to be revealed in a way that we cannot just understand, but value and treasure. Let me share a story with you guys. Fortunately, it's one that many of you had front row ticket to. Uh, Christmas Eve service. It's really great. It was. It's genuinely a really wonderful experience. It's really glad that a lot of you guys came out for it. Um, obviously, I'm not going to use like the security of the podium to like take jabs at people or myself. So I'm not going to be like, well, you know, if uh, so and so did X, Y, and Z. But the long story short is there was some miscommunication that happened. I had a lot of like random stress put on myself last second to like put some slides together. A lot of it was just my own lack of due diligence, and like it disrupted the flow in maybe a way that was really noticeable to you and. Maybe a way that you hardly even noticed at all. Hoping for the latter. But it really, really got to me, you know? It really, really got to me. Because I was feeling every single thing that I struggle with, especially these, uh, these, like, internal monologues of identity, disforming, deforming things about myself. And it just was really hard to shake off. And like, here's the thing, within, within myself, within the, the, you know, twisted heart of John Simon, there are, I believe, two independent creatures. One is very rational and thoughtful and logic and thinking and brain. And one is the sensitive feeling guy that I often try to pretend does not actually exist. I'm driving home after Christmas Eve and I am like shaking with how upset I am at myself with how angry I am at just the entire experience, and I felt just so painfully embarrassed. 
and it, it was just so much to bear. And the frustrating thing was this, this guy over here, Mr. Sensitive, was just feeling all of this stuff and taking the spotlight for himself, but Mr. Logic was saying, John, this isn't necessary. Like, this is not a rational response to what happened. John, nobody was throwing rotten tomatoes at you behind the soundboard. It's not that big of a deal, but it didn't matter how big of a deal it was. I still felt this way, and I was stuck, and I freaking hated it, man, so, so much. I'm just like trapped, right? Stuck in the reality of my own incompletion. And it's brutal. And it's not, it's not great. So I, so I uh, get to where I'm going, I pull out my phone, I'm like, I can't just carry this stuff on my, on my own back right now. So I fire out a text to, to Andy and Mike, of course, Andy, the other pastor, Mike, the worship guy, and I say, uh, if you wouldn't like it if I called him the worship guy, creative director, Mike. Uh, and I send a message to both of them and I say, guys, I am... I'm just, not, I'm just not in a great place right now. I'm just, I'm more upset than I should be, which makes me even angrier at myself, and I'm just, I'm just having a rough time. Would you guys be so kind as to bear this with me? I don't know what that looks like. I don't really want to spell out what that looks like, but could you see where I'm at, this, this big, stupid uh, bear trap that's clamped around my ankle? Could you see this with me? And uh, I don't know, just be there. And the response that I got was, was love. The response that I got was, uh, it's okay. It's all right, man. We're here. So I got home that night, like, very late. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, the sting of my own humanity is not numbed. It's not gone. It's still very present but I'm caught between a rock and a hard place, and the hard place is myself, but the rock is the love of God. And it was painful, but it was maybe the most Christian that I've ever felt in my life, that I felt so compelled to look at myself, not blindly, but to look nakedly at myself covered with the love of God. And that's awesome, but still brutal. And so when I ask myself what I'm waiting for when, it, when the promises of God are still slowly descending from heaven to touch, to reach out to us, I'm waiting for these parts of me that feel so incomplete to be healed once and for all. And, uh, and I don't know what your hard place is, but I would encourage you to wait with me. So let me, let me turn that around into an encouragement. And this encouragement may be uh, courage-giving for some and may come across as harsh for others, but 
That's what I wrote down, and I have to read it, unfortunately. Let's wait on God together. Let's wait on God together. Let's wait on God here, here at our church, here at our church, when we, when we speak what God has given us, here at our church, when we worship together, here at our church, when we have the Lord's Supper, let's wait as a community together, please. Mission Church is such a, a, a lovely, beautiful anomaly to me at times because we're so communal and we love each other and we have so many friendships that we see. But on any given Sunday, 60% of us won't be here. And it's just, I don't, I don't, no, I do. I do understand. But I just, I just have to say, this is the last, this is the last sermon of the year. You know, got to throw some punches out before the year is over. But honestly, like, here's what I know. You probably, maybe there's like some defensive thoughts uh, uh, stirring up. You're like, John, you don't know what's going on for me. John, you don't know what I'm dealing with. I don't. And of course, there are reasonable exceptions. I get that. I won't fight that. But let me say what I have to say. Here's what I do know, that God has prepared a steady, regular diet of strength and courage and hope that he has fed to his people for thousands of years, and it's called the gathering of his people. And it happens once a week, and it happens where he meets with us, and we sing to him, and we hear from him. That doesn't happen at Bible study. It doesn't happen at brunch. It doesn't happen when you visit the sick in the hospital. That's not to say any of those things aren't valuable. Trust me, they all are. But that's not what this is. God is transcending into the common places to where I can have coffee with a friend of mine and there can be a fellowship and a spirit bond that is beautiful and supernatural. But that doesn't mean that God only exists in the common. God has set Sundays aside for this and people are missing it and it's good. Like, I am not, trust me, and I even wrote this down so I would say this too. If I'm saying this for the ego trip of having filled seats every Sunday, may the Lord judge me for saying it. Sorry, could you say that again? <laughs> if I'm saying this for the ego trip of having seats filled, then may the Lord judge me for that. I'll say it again. I don't care what Siri says. I'll say it again if I have to. That just means I need to say it twice. But God has created a way that he is bringing his people together and doing it in a way to feed us and to sustain us. And some people just aren't getting that. Here's the thing, guys, and I've noticed this a lot. We spoke at, we've spoken at length over the past year and a half or so 
about preserving the unity in the church. We talked, we, we had a lot of political conversations. We talked about like, please don't elevate your political idols to become gospel issues. Please don't tear apart the body of Jesus just because you don't have political alignments on things. Please respect and value the unity of the body. And I think we, you know, obviously we had a lot of really good responses to that. Here's the thing. If you pride yourself in preserving the unity of Christ's body, but you can't show up to church more than once a month, you need to challenge that. You need to challenge that. I don't want to speak in generalizations. I do want to have the compassion and the consideration to say I don't know all the time. So please, if this doesn't apply, then don't let it apply. I don't want angry emails, but you know what? Send them anyways. But it's easy to make reasons that just justify the fact that coming to church is just not a value for us. Guys, like, you guys don't see You guys don't see the beautiful things that I've been able to see as a leader behind the scenes of what's happening at this church. I am so excited for the wave of the Holy Spirit that is just swimming through like our community right now. I'm so excited to see what's happening. But a lot of people are missing it, dude. A lot of people are just... And hey, you know, like I said, things come up, but not everything needs to. All right, move on. There you go. Type your email, send them. I'm ready. Actually, I have one more point, sorry. Church history fascinates me, you know? It really does. I love, I love the, the combination of uh, our, our faith combined with culture, combined with uh, interacting with the history that's coursed through the world. I think it's really, really interesting. But there have been times when I ask myself, what on earth do faithful believers do when the, when the culture that is around them, the church culture that is around them, has completely like forsaken the gospel? Like I'm thinking like, if you're a slave attending a slaveholder's church. Like the same church where they preach your like spiritual insubordination to them. Like what is God doing to feed that person? If you're a German uh, when, when the, the church in Germany back in the 40s was like really backing Hitler because they thought that he was the promise of restoring glory back to their nation. Like, I'm, you know, imagine you're a German there. You're seeing the writing on the walls and just how, like, completely cancerous this movement is, and yet you still want to be fed. And so I asked myself, what on earth would God be doing to preserve his faithfulness to people in those island situations? And the only answer that I can think of is that even when the leaders themselves were not living by the gospel, God was still feeding them the gospel. 
and that even when they were as hypocritical as could be, singing their hymns and their psalms and their worship songs, even when the leaders themselves were completely bent and and, and distorted, it was for that faithful person to be fed. God has used this to feed his people for so long. There's, it's just not, it's irreplaceable. It's irreplaceable. But as in doing so, we learn how to take the weariness of the human life and we learn how to wait together. And we learn how to care for each other, but also be cared for. And as we wait, we can learn to worship God in the space between. I'm tempted to say sometimes that hope is all that we have, but it's not true. Because our hope isn't the substance, it is the one who gives us hope, which is God. We don't have just hope. We have Christ. And with him, we have everything. And it's not on us, fortunately. It is the faithfulness that he has shown, that he has shown time and time and again with his people that saves us and sustains us. Truly, the story of Israel is the story of a good God. And truly, the story of Christmas is the story of a good God. So as we close, we're going to go into a few things now. Uh, First, we're going to go into a time of confession. What that means is we're going to dim the lights. We're going to take about two minutes of complete silence. Uh, This is for you. This is for all of us, but this is, this is for you. This is the time to respond. It doesn't have to be a response to anything that I was talking about. Maybe God has been, you know, steadily poking a nerve in you for as long as you can remember that you just need to bring up. There's something really valuable about just speaking something out, telling God you know, something that you need to respond to, a fear of frustration. But in the context of confession, just a sin, an area you haven't been trusting in him, an area where maybe you've been looking to something else for hope instead of him. This is that time to share it. And after confession, we'll be reminded that the, God, the, resp- the, the faithful response to confession is God's love and that we can trust in that um, confidently. On top of that, we're also going to worship in three ways. We're going to worship. Jason's going to come back up and lead us in a few more songs. Uh, we will have uh, giving in the back. There's a tablet right behind the, uh, the last row there for, for giving. Uh, we definitely encourage um, generous giving, just as God generously gives to us. And the last way we're going to worship is we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. Again, One of the longest things, I remember reading an old, old document, one of the oldest documents that exists in church history. I think it probably goes back to either the apostles or the disciples of the apostles. And it talks about what their church services looked like. And it's amazing how even thousands of years later, they 
uh, we try to emulate the little things that they did. And even a few years after Jesus was gone, they still had, they had already started celebrating the Lord's Supper, where they would come and they would eat and they would drink and they would remember and also experience the gift of Christ's presence. So I invite all of you who have, you know, who would call themselves a Christian, who put faith in Christ to come and share this blessing that Christ has for us. Um, let's pray. Father, as I uh, kind of kickstart confession here, I'm just, uh, I'm just grateful for the hope that you've placed within us. It is sometimes very hard to hope. It is oftentimes even harder when we uh, feel like we see our uh, bleeding, pulsing, ugly hearts um, loud and just taking up all of our attention. But God, you speak light into darkness all the time. That's how the story of creation was initiated. And so may we trust in you who brings light. May you meet with us today. May you comfort our weary hearts. Give us strength. Give us courage. Pray this in your name.